Okay, Matthew chapter 8. And last week we read about Jesus cleansing a leper and Jesus ministering to a centurion, a centurion slave actually. And we read this portion out of Matthew chapter 8. Let me read it again. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. Thank you. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him, and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled, and he said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And his servant was healed that very moment. Now let's look in Luke chapter 7. This is the parallel account recorded in another gospel. Same account, Luke chapter 7. And we see in Luke chapter 7 that it was not the centurion himself who came, but he sent, he sent uh, some others to speak on his behalf. And understanding the times to send somebody on your behalf was as if you were going yourself. And in Luke chapter 7, we're going to be reading from verse 1. And when he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking asking him to come and to save the life of his slave. And they came to Jesus and they earnestly implored him saying, He is worthy for you to grant him this. For he loves our nation and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am unworthy for you to come under my roof. Therefore I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed, for I am a man, uh, for I also am a man placed under authority, and so on. So you see the parallel account there, but what's interesting is Luke brings out the fact that this man had Jews speaking on his behalf. He was a Roman soldier who had Jews speaking on his behalf and saying, you know, you really ought to help this guy out because he loves our nation and it's he who built us our synagogue. If you compare this to the Syrophoenician woman who had begged Jesus to heal heal her daughter, Jesus at first wouldn't even answer her. And only after repeated begging, he said, okay, you can have the crumbs that are falling from the table. And he he spoke a word and her daughter was healed. Jesus had very little dealings with Gentiles, with with, with non-Jews. But he did with this Roman soldier. 
And remember, the Gospel first came in the book of Acts to Cornelius, another Roman soldier. What it says about Cornelius in Acts 10.22 is that Cornelius was a devout man and he loved the Jewish nation. So it's interesting that Jesus immediately, when a Roman centurion asked for help, Jesus immediately started going on his way as soon as he heard that this Roman centurion was kind to the Jewish people. Same with Cornelius. Of all the Gentiles for the Gospel to first be preached to, it was preached to Cornelius, a man who loved the Jewish nation and says used to give alms to the Jews. He was a Roman soldier. God gave a promise to Abraham, and the promise was in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And that was not a principle that we saw that was exclusively for Abraham. But that occurred for Abraham's seed and still occurs today. Still happens today. So, you see this principle of those who bless you I will bless and those who curse you I will curse. But then, and and we discussed some of this last time, then Jesus goes on, he is amazed. Jesus is amazed at the ability of this Roman soldier in Matthew chapter 8 to understand the whole principle of authority. Jesus equates authority, understanding of authority, with faith. This Roman centurion in Matthew chapter 8, verse 8 says, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, I say, do this, and he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled, and he said to those who were following, Truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. If you look at what Jesus was often reproving his disciples about, it was a lack of faith. Here, Jesus marvels. Can you imagine the God of the universe going, Whoa! I mean, this man really understood faith. Because he understood authority. I see this all the time. If a man comes under authority, he doesn't have that much trouble with his family. If a man steps out from under church authority, he has trouble with his wife, he has trouble with his kids, all sorts of troubles. Just attending a church does not place you under authority. It's relating to authority figures in your life. It's relating to your boss. Speaking well of them. It's learning how to relate to people. And then he goes on and he he continues on this and he says, I say to you that many will come, in verse 11, from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You know, many people ask, what's the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God? Because some gospels say the kingdom of heaven, some say the kingdom of God. Matthew always says the kingdom of heaven. He does not say the kingdom of God. This gospel is written to the Jew. And Jews today do not say the name God. They do not write the word God. They write G-D. In case there's any way that they might defame it. 
So, they, so you see this practice right here. It's this Gospel is written to the Jew. He says the Kingdom of Heaven. The same account written in other Gospels will say the Kingdom of God. So the two terms are indeed synonymous. But the sons of the Kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness, that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So you see, what he does is he marvels at this Roman centurion. And he says, you know, there's going to be many... And he's speaking of the Gentiles, the non-Jews, who are going to be feasting at a table with Abraham. Whereas many among the Jews will not be brought in because they fail to recognize the Messiah. So many believers fail to ever walk in faith. They don't understand anything of faith. And generally they understand very little about authority as well. We discussed some of this last time. I want to follow on this concept though of the Jews he's talking about not coming in and the Gentiles coming in. There are several categories in the New Testament, groups of people. And if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we will see that God deals with three groups of people in New, in New Testament teaching. Three groups of people. In the Old Testament teaching, he dealt with Jews and he dealt with Gentiles. And he dealt with them differently. He revealed the law to the Jews, and because of that, he held them all the more responsible. But in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32, it says, give, give no offense either to the Jew, to the Greek, or to the church of God. The, there are three groups in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there were Jews and Gentiles. In the New Testament, it says Jews... Greeks, which are synonymous with Gentiles, often that he'll use these terms synonymously. There are Jews, there are Gentiles, and then there's the church. And he deals with each group differently. He deals with believers in the church differently than he does with people outside the church. And he deals with the Jews differently. And there are different prophecies concerning the different groups in the Scriptures. Many people say that the church is the new Jerusalem. That there is no special regard for the Jewish people. I don't see that at all in Scripture. In fact, if you read in the book of Revelation, he calls out in the book of Revelation 144,000 from the 12 tribes. Very specific. And he names the 12 tribes that he calls them from. Interestingly, there's one tribe from the twelve that he doesn't call, because really there's thirteen tribes, because Ephraim and Manasseh are, make, make up an extra tribe, because the, Joseph's blessing went to two, Ephraim and Manasseh, his two kids. And because of that, there's one tribe left out, and you'll see, very specifically, it's left out in the book of Revelation, the tribe of Dan. And Dan was a very evil tribe. And God left them out of that blessing in the book of Revelation. But he calls 12,000 from 12 tribes in the book of Revelation. Very specifically, Jewish tribes. And these are going to be great evangelists in the end times. From the Jews, he's going to call them out. So he's still dealing with them even in the book of Revelation. But there are three groups now. There are Jews, there are Gentiles, and there's the church. Once we're in the church, we're all together. Look in in, uh, um, Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. You got Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 verse, um, verse 27. For all 
who were baptized into Christ have clothed themselves with Christ. So now he's talking about people who are baptized into Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Once you're in the church, you become heirs according to the blessings that were given to Abraham. Still, there is a discreet people, the Jewish people. But when you come into the church, once we're in the church, it's not like, hey, I'm a Jew, I should run the church, or I'm a Gentile, I should run the church. No, it has no respecter of where you came from. Once you're in the church, we are a unified group of people. There is neither slave nor free man. We are all one in Christ. Rich and poor should bow together to worship Jesus. And that's the thing about it. Male and female worship God together. We are all one in Christ. God deals in the New Testament with three groups. Jews, Gentiles, and the church. Once we're in the church, we are unified people and we are dealt with as the body of Christ. Now let's turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11 is a chapter which discusses the Jewish people. So you have in the New Testament... Paul is teaching the church in Rome, teaching the church in Rome, which is predominantly a Gentile church now. He's teaching them about Jewish people. And he says in Romans chapter 11, verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul was a Jew. I know to many Many Christians, this is a surprise. Paul was a Jew. Did you know Jesus was a Jew? You thought Jesus was a Christian, didn't you? (laughs) The word Christian came in about 65 AD. About 30 years after Jesus' death, that word started to be used of those who were following the teachings of this Nazarene named Christ. They called them Christians. Jesus never referred to himself as a Christian. He, He was a Jew. Paul was a Jew. He never referred to himself as a Christian. He referred to himself as a Jew who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And there are Jews like that today. There's estimated to be about 400,000 of them in the world today. So Paul establishes himself, and then he says in verse 2, God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know that the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel... Lord, they have killed the prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also been, come to be at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. So what does he do? He says, says, God has not forgotten the people, the Jews. He has not forgotten them. What he says is that even Elisha the prophet complained about the Jewish people. Elijah, being a Jew, complained about the Jewish people. He says, they've torn down your altars, they've killed your prophets, and I alone am left. So he's complaining to God about the Jewish people. And what does God do? God remembers his promise to Abraham. And he says, Elijah, just be careful now. I know you're among those people, but be careful what you say about these people. Because among them, there are 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to idols. 
And I have high regard for those people. High regard. So Elijah, be careful. What caused Moses to lose the blessing of coming into the promised land? For 40 years, he dealt with the Jewish people to bring them to the promised land. He did not come in because he lost his temper with God's people. And he called them a bunch of rebels. And he he smote the rock twice. And God said, watch it, Moses. You're not going into the promised land just for that. I know you're going to take these people through the wilderness 40 years, but you're not going in. You'll look at it, but you'll not go in. You've got to be careful what you say about my people, God says. Because God made a promise to Abraham. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And I hope to convince you today that when you are upset about Jews, that you hold your tongue because I want you to have a good life. And I don't believe that there's many people who wake up in the morning and say, I really want to have a terrible life. I really want things to go bad for me today. I would love to marry a person who's a tyrant. I really would. I want to marry, I want a spouse who's really poor with children. Nobody wakes up and says that. Everybody wants to have a good life. I'm going to share with you a secret from the Scriptures that can help you to have a very good life according to the Scriptures. Remember, the Gospel came first to Cornelius, a man who loved the Jewish nation. Jesus spoke and dealt differently with Gentiles who were gracious to the Jewish nation. And Paul is warning here, these Gentiles, be careful. This is in the New Testament. This is many years after the death of Jesus. Paul is warning Gentiles how to deal with Jews. And not just Gentiles, also Jews who had become believers, how to deal with Jews. And so he says, God has not forgotten them. Verse 7, let's move on down to verse 7 in, in Romans 11. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened, just as it was written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, and ears ears to hear not, down to this very day. As David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, and a stumbling block, and and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and bend their backs forever. And I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgressions, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Look at that. By the transgression of the Jews in not receiving Jesus as the Messiah, God brought in Gentiles to make the Jews jealous. And that's exactly what it says. He brought you into the church so that your life and love for God would cause Jews to look and to say, wow, they really love their God. Look how much they love God. This really changed their life. I wish I loved God like that. God brought you in to make that nation jealous. You say, well, I, I, don't, I don't like that whole idea. Well, too bad. God chose it. All right? God chose what He chose. You got a problem with that? It's what my... my my 15-year-old says. I mean, that's his common life. Got a problem with that? Any, anytime his brother or sister says something to him. Got a problem with that? I mean, it's just an innocent little comment. Anyway, you got a problem with that? You take it up with God. Verse 12. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world, 
and their failure is riches to the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? If the Jews' transgression in not receiving the gospel has meant a blessing for the Gentile world, how much more will their fulfillment be? How much more will you be blessed when a Jew receives Christ? That's what he says. When a Jew understands that Jesus is the Messiah and comes into the fold of the church, how much will the church be blessed? If you have been blessed by their disobedience, how much more by the Jews coming in? Get a Jew saved and you will be greatly blessed. The church will be blessed through the salvation of that Jew. That's what the scriptures say. But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. You see what he says? He says, I want to love God so much that my fellow countrymen, my Jews, my fellow Jews, see God in me and are drawn to Christ. You say, that, that doesn't really happen. Let me tell you, I, I was born in a Jewish family. I was raised as a Jew. And I came to know Jesus as Messiah at the age of 18. I went to Israel last year to visit my daughter. I gave five talks in five days. At one, at the most conservative university, and everybody knew who I was, because on my website, I'm very open about my Jewishness, and how I'm a Jew who believes Jesus is the Messiah. And because of these days being such, such, such uh, turbulent days in Israel, not many scientists go there to, to speak. And everybody had read my website before I got there. And it and I was visiting the Technion University. And one woman there had just finished reading my website when I walked in her office for, for my appointment with her. And she said, I'm just finishing reading your personal statement. I said, well, then you probably don't like me. And the reason I say that is, to a Jew, you're just a Gentile dog, all right? I am a traitor. Right? So they view me very differently than they would you. This is, this is what you grew up with, this is your understanding. But me, they view very differently. I said, well, then you probably don't like me. She says, oh, oh, no, no. And we got to talking. And she said, you know, my grandfather was the chief rabbi of Jerusalem. And as we began to talk, and she said, and she told me that in high school she was a, a tour guide in Jerusalem. And so I talk, started talking about the geography. And I started talking about what the scriptures say about this place. And we had this tremendous dialogue. She was an Orthodox Jew, and I was telling her how much I loved the Word of God. And we would go back and forth, and we were just volleying with the Scriptures, having this wonderful time. You know, I would talk about this passage, and, and she was amazed at what I knew, and I was actually amazed at what she knew. And she shared with me things that I had never seen before. And then when, when we were getting done, and, and I was just had all these tears in my eyes that I had to keep wiping away that I was dialoguing with this Orthodox Jewish woman professor chemist about the scriptures in her office. And she, too, started weeping. And then as we were talking, she said, you know, I envy you. I said, you envy me? Why is that? And I had just finished telling her how much I love the Word of God. And I'd... She said, you know, in my Orthodoxy, I have to light a candle, say a set prayer, light this candle, say this set I have so many things to do in my orthodoxy, I never get a chance like you do just to sit down with the scriptures and enjoy God. Isn't that interesting? 
She said she envies me. Then, a professor from Bar Ilan University, which is the most conservative technical university in the country, was visiting the United States. He came to Houston, spent a day here at Rice, had him over for dinner. Shireen had to, you know, wash all the plates with um, boiling water and get everything ready properly. And as we were sitting at the table, I mentioned to him what this professor at the Technion had said. He looked at me, and he too is an Orthodox Jew with his little yarmulke, his kippah on his head, and, and couldn't eat any meat in our home because it wasn't a kosher home, could only eat vegetables and, and, and uh, um, this special uh, um, uh, kosher bread that we had brought on in. And as we're talking, he says, oh, I envy you too. I said, you do? He says, yes. He says, your understanding of the Word of God and your appreciation of it. He says, I wish I had that. We move to jealousy, these people. I had never realized how vivid this scripture is. Your purpose is to love God so much that you are to move to jealousy, that nation, to bring them on into the kingdom. If the rebellion has meant salvation to the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be a blessing in your life? And then he says, in verse 15 of Romans 11, For if their rejection is reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump also, and if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being wild olives, were grafted in among them, and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it was not you, it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say, the branches were broken off so that I would be grafted in. Look what he says. He says, be careful now. If you start saying, well, they were broken off so that I could come in. He says, you were grafted into their root. We are grafted into the root of the kingdom of Israel through their, their keeping of the law. And we are greatly indebted to them for keeping the law, for keeping the scriptures holy and pure. And he says, you have been grafted in. And lest, lest we become arrogant, look what he says. He says in, in verse 19, you will say then branches were broken off so that we could be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. Behold the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness, if you continue in His kindness, otherwise you shall be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what was by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into the cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not want you to be unaware, uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob, this is my covenant with them, when I will take away their sin. From the standpoint of the Gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. 
Why does God love them so much? Not because of anything they've done, but because of the fathers. Because he loved a man named Abraham, and he made him a promise. And he said, I will bless the world through you, and through your seed I will bless the world. Because of their fathers. I love Abraham so much, God says, that when my son walks this earth, and he deals primarily with the Jews, when he hears of a Gentile who loved the Jewish nation, he will immediately bolt to his house. As soon as Jesus heard that this man built them a synagogue, he said, I'm on my way. And that he heard of a man named Cornelius, who loved and feared God and gave alms to the Jewish nation, what did he do? He says, take the gospel to his house first. You want a blessing, you bless the Jews. To this day, I take, I take a portion of my offering. I give a tithe, a full tithe to my church. But I take an offering and I give it to those who work for an evangelism among Jews. Those who spread the gospel with a focus among the Jewish people. I do that to this day. Because I have learned that when you give alms to this sort of thing, there is a particular blessing. And you will find this in the scriptures. Verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So he says all of Israel will be saved someday. God is going to reveal it to them. Right now, though, there is just a remnant. This principle of blessing and cursing we see throughout the scriptures. It came in Abraham's own lifetime. Abraham had a beautiful wife named Sarah. I mean, she was really beautiful. And he was so worried, he had told her to just tell people, you know, if they ask, don't, he, he says, don't tell people you're my wife, say you're my sister. Because he was afraid somebody would kill him to get his beautiful wife. And Pharaoh, Pharaoh of Egypt, took Sarah to be his wife. Yes. But God would not let Sarah, uh, Pharaoh have any relations with her, it says that God came and he brought plagues upon Pharaoh as a result of this. And then Pharaoh found out and said, why didn't you tell me this was your wife? He says, well, actually, yes, she's my wife, but she is my half-sister. And so Sarah was actually his half-sister. That was okay back then. And uh, uh, now it's not okay. <laughs> right? So, so and, and, and in fact, that was pr- prior to the law. In the law of Moses, it said specifically, it mapped out how far you had to be before you could marry one among your relatives. But Abraham lived long before the law of Moses came. And then a man, another man named Abimelech, took Sarah to be his wife. And then God, it says, met Abimelech in a dream and said, Abimelech, you are a dead man. Imagine God meeting you in a dream and saying, Oh, by the way, I'm going to kill you today. <laughs> oh. And Abimelech says, What did I do? He says, Oh, because that woman you just took, wanting to be your wife, that's another man's wife. He says, I didn't know. She told me the guy was her, was her brother. He says, Return her. And when he returned her, it says, God had closed, closed fast the womb of all the women in his home. And he says, You get Abraham to pray for you so that the wombs may open again. You see, blessing for blessing and curse for curse. Sarah had not yet borne any children to Abraham. Isaac had not yet been born. And he was going to cut, this would have cut off the Jewish nation. Cut off the, 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 the line of Abraham. And so what did God do? Blessing for blessing, curse for curse. You take that woman, I'll shut the womb of every wife in your home. Blessing for blessing, curse for curse. 
Pharaoh. Later on, the Jews were enslaved in Egypt. After 400 years, you know, sometimes the thing that we remember is God remembers His promises, but sometimes it's a long period of time. 400 years later, not only did they enslave the Jews, they started killing their male children. They said every time a male child is born, kill them. What did God do? He brought plagues upon Egypt. What was the last plague? He killed the firstborn male of every home. And then what did He do? Every one of the soldiers of the armies of Egypt, He drowned in the sea. Blessing for blessing and curse for curse. You want to kill every male that's born to the Jews? I will kill in every home. I'll take a male life. And I'll take every male in your army too. Blessing for blessing and curse for curse. Does this sort of thing come down upon modern day? There are documents after documents that go throughout history. But let's just, just, just read a few instances from more modern times. After 2,000 years, numerous examples could be given of how the Abrahamic covenant has worked itself out. But we'll limit ourselves to four. Because of the Great Armada, the Spanish Empire controlled vast parts of the world. The fact that every nation south of the United States, south of the United States except Brazil, speaks Spanish is an indication of what the Spanish Empire once was. The Spanish economy was strong, and as a result, so was everything else. In 1492, the same year Columbus set sail for America, the Spanish Edict of Expulsion was issued, ordering all Jews to leave the country. With this act, Spain blundered. When she expelled her Jews, she expelled her scholars, doctors, and bankers. The Spanish economy thus began to crumble and collapse. Finally, the source of Spain's strength, the Armada, sailed against England and was destroyed, not so much by the British Navy, but by a storm at sea. The Abrahamic covenant had worked itself out. She who expelled the Jews was then expelled from her holdings in the Western Hemisphere until nothing remained. Another point involving Spain shows the blessing aspect beginning to work as well. The story of Queen Isabella, sold her Jews in order to buy the three ships for Columbus, breaks down under, the, under historical research. It was not Queen Isabella's jewels, jewels, but Queen Isabella's Jews who purchased the three ships for Columbus. History shows that two Jewish banking families bought the ships. Many of the men on the three vessels were Jews fleeing Spain as a result of the Edict of Expulsion. According to Columbus's own diary, the first one to spot land was a Jew sitting in the crow's nest. Also, according to his diary, the first one off his ship was his interpreter, Luis de Torres, a Spanish Jew. So as Europe was slowly beginning to close its door to the Jews, a new world was discovered that would eventually eventually to become, in the form of the United States, the greatest haven for Jews fleeing persecution around the world. And there's time after time, there's three other instances in quite modern time. You have England, you have Germany, and and, and multiple examples with Germany. Uh, Here's one. Uh, Concrete walls were built around the ghettos and the Jews were slowly beaten and starved. This was in Germany. The Gestapo had a favorite game which consisted of taking one Jew and forcing him to kill another Jew in order to save the life of his own family. Jews were forced to go into hiding as Nazis systematically sought them out. Six million were finally exterminated. But finally, after six years, Germany was no longer conqueror but conquered. The Germans who once built walls around the Jews for a generation had a wall cutting in half their once... Uh, the, the once proud capital of Berlin. The people who forced Jews to kill Jews for 40 years had Germans killing Germans who tried to make their escape over the Berlin Wall. 
To this day, Nazi criminals are forced to live in hiding as Jews seek them out. All this provides us with a unique picture of the sub-principle of curse for curse in kind. You know, there's, there, there's, there's a beautiful portion and there is a way to wipe out the Jews. There really is a way. God gives the secret. And I, I, I hope there's no one here who really wants to fulfill this vision. But there is a way to do this. And God maps it out in Jeremiah 31. In Jeremiah 31, if you look there, there is the way to wipe out the Jews. And it is quite precise. And it tells how you can wipe the Jewish nation out. How you will wipe Jews right off the face of this earth. And if there are any anti-Semites here, hear this. This is the pattern of what you have to do. Jeremiah 31, verse 35. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for the light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is His name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. If you would like to destroy Israel, you must first destroy the stars and the moon and the sun, and you will be able to destroy the nation of Israel. So that is your first task. You do that, and these people will be wiped out. Alright? There is a blessing that will come to you. I don't agree with a lot of what the Jews do. But I hold my tongue because God made a promise to a man named Abraham who he really loved. There's a blessing for blessing and a curse for curse. You know, in my office is a, is a Jewish professor who has made an office out of, out of one of the offices in my space and he is a professor from, from one of the, the universities in Louisiana that got wiped out. So his department got wiped out. And I feel that there is this enormous blessing upon my entire laboratory. Because this Jewish professor is, has his office right in that office. And he's been there since, since the hurricane hit. I'm like, just stay. No problem. And his student is using my lab. Says, Can you imagine the blessing that's going to come? You bless the Jewish people and you will be blessed you will see there will be a lot of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism comes and goes, and there will be a lot of this. And you may not agree with what's happening there. But don't get on the bandwagon. Bless the Jews, and you will be blessed. You want things to do, go well for you? You want to have a good life? Walk into this blessing that awaits us. Jesus proclaimed it in Matthew chapter 8. He says, you know, there's going to be many who I'm going to call from outside the kingdom of Israel to sit down and have supper with my friend Abraham in heaven. And many of the Jews are going to miss out. But the principle that he also leaves us with, that is a principle that extends into the New Testament over and over again and into modern history, is this very principle. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Blessing for blessing in kind, and cursing for cursing in kind. You see the pattern throughout the Scriptures. Jesus Himself walked in this. How much more should we? And remember, if their rebellion has brought blessings to you, the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? 
share your life with a Jew in such a way that they will see your life and be drawn. A lot of times you can't talk about Jesus because they have been so programmed that Jesus is a bad word. They've been so programmed. And, and it really is an offensive word to them in many respects. It's an offensive word. But, and, and that's why very often evangelism to the Jews, they'll use the, t- the, the term Yeshua. Yeshua, which, which, uh, um, which was really Jesus' name. I mean, if you're in heaven and you say, Hey, Jesus, and he doesn't turn around, try saying, Hey, Yeshua, because that's really his name. And then I'll bet he'll turn around. And, and, uh, uh, what, <laughs> and so, <laughs> this, is, this is one of the names that's used. But let your light shine before them. Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Shireen met this Jewish professor's wife. And this Jewish professor has read my personal statement. And you know how I know? I happened to walk into his office when he was reading it. Just, I mean, I hardly ever go into that office, but I happened to walk in when he was reading it. So I know he's read it. His wife met my wife at the Jewish Community Center. And you say, well, what is Shireen, this Pakistani Christian, doing at the Jewish Community Center? Because, it's, because they, they were teaching the driver's education course there, and she had to drop off Josiah. And this woman works at the Jewish Community Center. And she met my wife, and she was so thankful to my wife for providing a place for her husband to work. Just the blessing that's coming. They'll see the good works and they'll glorify your Father who's in heaven so that even if they don't say it, in their heart they'll envy you and envy your love for God. And that's what you want to do. You want to bring them in by your love for God and walk in that blessing. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for these young people. And I pray, Lord, that they would take advantage of this principle that's shown in Your Word. That they would not become like so many, speaking slanderously or attacking the Jews, but they would learn to hold their tongue and just say in response, God bless them. God bless them and draw them to Your Son. And in that, may they receive a blessing. And Father, I pray that through these young people here, and through their lives, that many Jews would be so jealous for God, and that some would come into the kingdom because of their lives. Because of their lives. And if they have experienced blessing in the church because of the rebellion of the Jews, how much more blessing will they receive as they see this Jewish brother or sister come on into the kingdom? Father, I pray that their lives would be examples to the Jews, and that they would never forget this message. And that through this, you would bless them as they bless the descendants of your friend Abraham. And Father, I commit this time to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.